When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where we take what's happening in the world today and try to give some answers from Holy Scripture and from church tradition and a lot of other stuff too. Thanks for joining. Most of the Bible stories we have and that we tell are not suitable for children um, in that they contain stuff that grown-ups can really only understand. And yet the stories that we do tell children and we should tell children are the ones like the story of Gideon. I do remember in my childhood hearing the Gideon story numerous times, especially the drinking the water, sorting out the soldiers, reducing their numbers to a small group of 300, and then uh, breaking the jars of clay and the torches bursting forth and blowing the trumpets, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon and routing the enemy. I've always loved that story. It's very inspiring. And, uh, Yet the the rest of the story goes on, and I remember hearing the rest of the story many years later. I guess I was a teenager reading it, or maybe studying it uh, with a group, I'm not sure. Just what happens to Gideon, what he ends up doing, how he ends up uh, ending his judgeship. And the end is, like so many people in the book of Judges, a really difficult end. Um, one that is not in the trajectory of God's program for God's people. There's this recapitulation or reenactment almost of what happens after the deliverance from the Red Sea, where Aaron tells the people to take out their earrings, put them in a smelting pot, and suddenly out comes the golden calf. This is the God that delivered you out of Egypt, Aaron says. And Gideon does pretty much the same thing, except this time the earrings are not from the Israelites, the earrings are from the Midianites. They are spoils of war. The word booty um, has a lot of meanings in modern English, and yet, because of a very favorite snack, uh, pirate's booty has stayed with us in that original meaning of spoils of war or plunder or loot. Um, I like the word loot better, L-O-O-T, for this kind of stuff because I think it's used in video games a lot and people know what that means and um, it's just a better word than booty. But here loot is used or booty and that's where they got these earrings. There's really only one way to get an earring from somebody that doesn't want to give it to you. So these are symbols of conquest, of killing the owners of these earrings. Um, Roman generals were famous for cutting off hands of the enemy and counting the hands. That way you had proof positive of the number of people that were killed. 
And this is a very ancient practice in warfare that persists even to this day um, in some modern warfare. And these earrings are symbols of that conquest, the symbols of God's conquest, really, of God's deliverance from an overwhelmingly large enemy. And yet these symbols of God's deliverance and conquest are, they become an idol, a literal idol, very quickly. Um, we have the tally of all these earrings tallied up, um, the collars around the camel's necks, they seem rather large, and then the earrings seem kind of small, but all of it adds up to 1,700 shekels of gold. A shekel is both a monetary weight, like a, like the word pound, and a, and a money um, measurement. And so Gideon makes an ephod out of it. I'm not really sure what it was. The word ephod can mean a lot of different things in the Old Testament. It certainly means priestly garment of some kind, uh, either the undergarment or the outer garment. But the fact that it's made out of metal means that it's um, either the breastplate or it is maybe a metal shirt. Um, that symbolizes sort of a priest or deliverance. It's hard to know why Gideon made this particular thing for them. Um, He doesn't explain it in any way. Um, And yet this is what he does. And he puts it in his hometown of Orpha. Orpha. Um, And so this this ephod becomes a place of pilgrimage, a destination to visit, and then to pray to, and then to pray near, and to leave offerings for, which are more than likely picked up by Gideon and his entourage. So when people bring offerings to this ephod, they are also bringing food and provisions to Gideon's large force that have kind of rallied around him. Um, you know, at this time in the Judges, it's probably, if you've watched a lot of post-apocalyptic movies, Mad Max and such, it's probably um, more like that situation than um, like medieval knights riding around on horses situation. Um, A ragtag collection of soldiers and warriors that are successful with Gideon. I'm sure the 300 kind of went on to be folk heroes. Um, And so uh, this becomes the, what is called a um, departure from the faith. And so we see the cycle of the judges again and again, that there there is oppression, the threat of extermination by an outside force. There's judgment, there's punishment, there's all kinds of trial and tribulation. And then God delivers God's people, rescues them through miraculous ways through these judges. And then with their ease and prosperity, they go back to doing exactly what they were doing before and maybe even worse than what they were doing before. Um, They have asked for Gideon to be their king. Rule over us and your son and your grandson will be king. Um, They don't say king here, but that's kind of what they're saying. Um, 
even in um, it says Gideon's own son is named um, and I'm working off two different versions of this um, here the son um, who's has the name Abimelech um, Gideon has a son from his concubine in Shechem I believe who is unnamed um, named Abimelech or my father is the king um, so when you have a son uh, or the son of the king Abimelech or my, no my father is the king um, that's kind of saying something isn't it um, <clears throat> that we are announcing a dynasty um, <clears throat> and this is the peril of leadership you know and always it is when you're successful is to establish a dynasty based on hereditary not on merit or achievement or skills or anything like that people think of monarchies as being more stable just because we've seen some examples of that and yet the history of monarchy is um, pretty much just as bad as every other form of government and sometimes worse when the monarch is corrupt and evil to a degree that it spills over into a lot of other areas of life we can see that power corrupts and Gideon's power has corrupted him in a really profound way King George III after the Revolutionary War said of George Washington when George Washington refused to become president for life of America um, they tried to make him pretty much a king a dictator of America he went back to his farm and said no thanks King George III said Washington has become the greatest man ever to live um, the, we have numerous examples Cincinnatus in Rome a general that Cincinnati Ohio is named after um, wins a famous battle for the Romans against their foes and they want to make him emperor dictator and he says no uh, no, I'm going back to my farm. So Cincinnatus um, becomes the symbol for warriors who, instead of seeking power and prestige, go back to their farms to work and work their farms. Of course, George Washington is going back to work his farm that is run by enslaved people and that is worked by enslaved people um, there. So it's not like he's going back to to do the actual work. And yet, um, Washington and Hamilton, who is not a slave owner and very anti-slavery, and many other Revolutionary War veterans form the Society of the Cincinnatus, which is a um, club for Revolutionary War officers, predominantly, to try to get them to not seek the kind of power that so many dictators have sought over time kind of a good example and Gideon is an example of how that can go awry when everybody calls for you to take the leadership and you in your better judgment say no but this ephod becomes an idol the symbol of God's deliverance becomes something that they really can't get out of out from um, chapter 8 verse 27 
um, it says that um, all Israel became unfaithful there because of it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his household. That's the contemporary English Bible. The um, New Revised Standard says that um, all Israel prostituted themselves to it there, and became and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Um, I don't like to use the word prostitute there um, as a translation, but that is the literal word, in that they they um, departed from their trust and left their trust in God by the wayside and trusted in this ephod and what it meant, and really trusting in Gideon as a person. Um, how quickly we depart from God's trust and love. I don't know, we, we kind of today anachronistically apply this language of idolatry to the stuff that we struggle with and deal with. And I don't know what it is for you, what you put your trust in. Um, we put our trust in many things to save us, to deliver us again. And we like symbols of that trust. Um, ultimately, for Christians, the image of the invisible God is Jesus, who is a human being just like us. And he is where we place our trust and hope. And he is very real. Um, people say, well, if Jesus was alive today, you know, what would he say? Well, Jesus is alive today. Jesus is alive today. Um, Christians believe that. He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. He ascended into heaven. If you believe in the ascension, you believe that Jesus is alive today. And he is right there. You can reach out and touch him if you were close enough. That, um, that Jesus answers this question of, is there a symbol I can trust? Is there something I can look at and trust? And the symbol that he left us is the communion meal, the bread and the wine. This is the meal he gave us, the feast he invites us to. And we ought to seek after it. We ought to find it wherever it is. Um, and this corrects the problem of Gideon. The problem of Gideon is that he knows people need a symbol other than him to look at. And he does this, hoping maybe for the best, but it turns out to be something that corrupts him and all the other people. The only symbol to look at is the symbol that Jesus gave us, his own body and blood. And we ought to seek that. We ought to want that, like these people are looking for this ephod. Um, is it possible to be idolatrous to the sacrament? Um, there may, that possibility may exist if we find ourselves loving the sacrament more than we love people. And ultimately, um, we cannot be idolatrous with the sacrament in that it is the presence of Jesus among us. Just as if Jesus walked into the room, um, I would bow down to him. Um, I, would, I would try to show with my body and with my soul and, and heart and mind that I'm following him, that I love him, that I need him, that he's, um, and the call on his healing in my life. And, and that's what I do in the sacrament every Sunday. I try to do that too to see him in the sacrament, to see him being really there for me, to see him healing me, to see him um, reaching out to me in love. And, and the relationship there of bowing and worshiping is, is certainly there. But we also know Jesus as a friend. 
Um, we also know Jesus as our sibling. We also know Jesus as someone who cares about us, someone we can laugh with, someone we can share our life stories with. And all of those ways of relating to Jesus are how people in the Bible related to Jesus and how we will until time comes to an end. And so the lesson of Gideon is that um, to beware in the good intention things of our life, what are we substituting for God? They're always kind of good things, but they're never quite God. I wasn't able to record uh, the part about Abimelech and what happens to him because, uh, well, I didn't bring my iPad on a journey. So I've got my phone. I can't record and do Zoom at the same time. But I encourage you to read Judges chapter 9. Some really wild stuff happens. They make him a king and he kills all of his brothers except for one who escapes. And there's this beautiful poem about the trees in Judges 9. And all the trees say, we want a king. And so they go to the olive tree. The trees go to the olive tree and say, we want you to be our king. And the olive tree says, no thanks. I'd rather keep producing olive oil and olives. And so they go to the fig tree and and they say, we'd like you to be our king over us. And the fig tree says, why would I leave making figs? I love figs. They're good to eat. Everybody likes them. So they go to the wine, uh, the uh, vine, the vine tree or whatever, and the grape tree and say, be our king, rule over us, stand over us. And the vine says, everybody likes the grapes. Everybody likes the wine. Why would I stop blessing what, what gods and men enjoy? So they go to the bramble, the thorn, and they say, can you be king over us? And the thorn bush says, sure, I'll be king over you. And I'll make you do whatever I want because I'm the thorn bush and I'll burn everything to the ground, all the trees, even the cedars of Lebanon. So this is a poem that the one surviving brother of Abimelech says, um, Abimelech says, Jotham, this is the poem. So I encourage you to read it in Judges chapter nine. It's really fascinating stuff this very early poem about how kings are always predatory. They always take things. Um, In fact, the greatest thing you can do for the world is to grow a tree, grow an olive tree or fig tree or wine or a vine um, and bless the world with fruit and olive oil and good things rather than um, becoming a king. So those are good lessons, but that's all in Judges chapter nine. I encourage you to read his story there sort of the aftermath of the tragedy of Gideon.